Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome to the Art of Our Wars on the Tanya Acker Show. One of the reasons I wanted to do this series is because I wanted to put some of the fights that we're having today into context. You know, we sometimes can get so riled up about what we see and hear and read today that we can forget that a lot of this stuff has happened to the people who came before us and they were dealing with exactly the same kind of fight. Take, for instance, the debate people are having over cryptocurrencies. Some people think that that is the currency of the future. Others think it's nothing but a big scam. Well, you know what, my friends? Once upon a time, we were having the exact same fight about the mighty greenback dollar. Yes, we were. Here I am with historian H.W. Brands to talk about the history of our fights about money. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Brands. Thank you for being here. Delighted to be with you. So before the Civil War, we didn't always have the paper money that we now use and take for granted and to which we impart so much value. What were people using to buy and pay for things before they started using greenbacks? Well, for the most part, they were using the equivalent of IOUs. The government, the federal government, coined money. So there were gold coins, there were silver coins. But people needed paper money in addition to that. But the paper money was money that was printed and distributed by banks. And it would say, you know, the Bank of Omaha promises to pay you $20 if you deliver this. And if you happen to be in the vicinity of Omaha, then you probably expect this is worth $20. If, on the other hand, you were in Chicago and somebody wanted to pay you with a $20 Bank of Omaha note, you might say it's a lot of trouble to get to Omaha. If you're going to pay me in those kind of notes, I want $30 instead of $20 for whatever you're selling. So there were hundreds of essentially private monetary systems, or another way of looking at it, there's all these IOUs floating around. And the value of the IOUs depended on the confidence of the bearers and the recipients in the institution that was supposed to repay, and also on the convenience of getting there. So it was a real inconvenience to American commerce. If you wanted to do commerce outside of a 20-mile radius, then you really were hoping for something better. In a situation that you just described, where essentially local banks are printing their own money, it didn't really, I mean, that's not going to really be conducive to somebody in Kansas doing business with somebody in New York, right? Because the person in New York never has to take that Bank of Kansas money, correct? Yeah, that was, ex- that was exactly the problem. It was the main hindrance to the growth of a national economy. There were hundreds of local economies, and they did okay in the local economies, but the, the dream of people to be able to, say, build a textile factory in Massachusetts that could sell its products all over the country. Well, that was very difficult to do. You, there were monetary exchanges, people who exchanged currencies, but every time an exchange was made, somebody took a cut. And so you couldn't efficiently manufacture in Connecticut or in Massachusetts, where many of the mills were, for anybody that was more than a, maybe a couple hundred miles away. Beyond that, you were just at the mercy of all sorts of other things. It was basically the situation in Europe before the adoption of the euro. Every time you crossed almost state boundaries, you, you essentially had to change currencies. 
people really then couldn't have a good sense of what things were going to cost or what the, how much money they were going to make, I would imagine, as the economy grew. So then talk about what happened a little bit during the Civil War. So the Confederates had their own money. The Union had their own money. Both sides were trading or attempting to trade uh, with uh, Europe during the, during the time of the war. How did that work out? For international trade, the coin of the realm was always gold. And the fact that gold had been discovered in California in the late 1840s, and lots of gold had come out of California and other mines in the West during the 1850s, this eased the problem to some degree. But people understood that a monetary system that was at the whim of the latest gold discovery was one that was going to be quite unpredictable. So the Civil War comes, and yes, you're right. A third of the country, the 11 states that secede, they basically become an entirely separate economy. Now, there was some smuggling across the border between the two, but on the whole, they were separate. And the Confederacy had its own currency. The government of the Union initially tried to avoid printing paper money because people simply didn't trust paper money the way they trusted gold and silver. And the thing about gold and silver is, you know, God made those. Uh, the, the treasury didn't, the, the mint didn't, you know, and, and there's no more. But under the duress of the war, when the Union government, the government of the United States under Abraham Lincoln, needed to spend lots of money for war provisions, they needed more money. And so, and because, and this is crucial, because they were dealing with fares across many states, they couldn't rely on those old state paper notes. So for the first time, the U.S. government printed notes that were U.S. government notes. And the, the crucial aspect of it was that creditors were required to accept these notes. And it still says on every U.S. paper note, it says this note is legal tender. And that, that formula means it has to be accepted. And, and the, the formula is legal tender for all debts, public and private. So the government knew that people would prefer not to take paper money. They would rather have gold. But after the 1862 Legal Tender Act was passed, they had to. If you're in business and you're selling a horse for $10 and somebody hands you a $10 bill, if it's one of these greenbacks, called so-called because of the, the green ink, um, you had to take it. And so they forced people to accept it. But even so, the United States at that point operated on a dual currency system. There was still gold in circulation. And in fact, the gold gave rise to gold dollars, gold notes. And these notes said that this is redeemable in gold. And so in effect, there were the gold dollars and then the greenback dollars. And the greenback dollars were always worth less because there was this concern that the government could simply print more of those. And it did, although things didn't get really out of hand on the Union side of the war. In the Confederacy, they got way out of hand. And inflation in the Confederacy was just rampant until the Confederate dollars weren't worth anything at all. Would it be appropriate to say that forcing people and back in those days to accept these greenbacks would be a little like if today you said to folks, you've got to take payment in crypto. Yeah. Um, was it a little bit like that? Oh, yeah. People were as suspicious of paper notes as then as people are today of crypto. And there were a lot of people who thought, well, you know, what good is this piece of paper? It's only as good as the government behind it. And that's, that's the key here because it's called fiat money. And it's only money because the government says it's money and because the government says that it's going to redeem it at some point. Except these greenbacks, they weren't backed by anything except sort of the confidence in government that the good government wouldn't keep printing and printing. And so, yeah, there was that's, that's why this law had to be passed to compel people to take it because otherwise they wouldn't. 
And your analogy to crypto, I think, is very apt because some governments today have already said, you know, we're going to use crypto. But the people who live there don't want it because they don't trust it. It's, it's kind of magic. In fact, when they, people started uh, getting these legal tender notes, they thought this was almost like magic hocus pocus. Just because it says legal tender, this, is, this piece of paper is really worth a horse, you know, or is worth, you know, a quarter of an acre of land or something like that. You got to be kidding. But it finally underscored the fact that money of all sorts is really an act of faith. Because what's gold worth? Well, you know, it depends on what somebody will sell you for it. But it took a long time. And in fact, one of the things that it did was to open opportunities for speculation and indeed corruption in the, the groups that were betting on the rise or fall of the greenback dollar against the gold dollar. And one of the things that happened during the Civil War was that um, when a battle would begin, there were people on sort of both sides of this speculation who wanted to know who was going to win. Because if the Union armies won, then that would lead to a rise in the value of the greenback, the, the fiat money, because the government of the Union wouldn't feel such pressure to produce more of it. If the Union side lost, then that would fall because there was a fear, uh-oh, it's going to be a long war, they're going to have to print more of these things. And in the first big battle of the war, the Battle of Bull Run in July of 1861, the initial reports from the battlefield was great Union victory. And the reporters raced from the battlefield to get to the first telegraph office, and they scribbled their reports, and they, they got to Wall Street in New York. And, and people were cheering the streets in New York that, in, for the Union and everything, and the value of greenbacks went up, and everybody was you know, really happy. But it turned out that in the afternoon of that battle, the Union side lost, and the Confederates won, and they won a huge victory. And when I first would read these accounts, I would say, wait a minute, why didn't the reporters just wait for the end of the battle? That's like saying, who won the Super Bowl at halftime? But the thing is, there was a lot of money on the line. I mean, it, people really were betting on the outcome of these battles, the way people bet on the outcome of football games. You know, it's funny when you talk about the fact that any currency, be it a greenback, crypto, gold, is really only as good as the faith that people put in it. I think that that's really interesting because when, you can't, when it comes to greenbacks, it wasn't just faith. I mean, as you point out, the government had to legally compel folks to take this money, and that act went to the Supreme Court, didn't it? And in fact, we almost wouldn't have had greenbacks, but right. for a little bit of court packing. Uh, can you tell my viewers and listeners about that? Well, so it's unclear that the government has the authority to issue, issue paper money. The Constitution says that the federal government can coin money, but it doesn't say it can print money. And there was good reason for this because the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, they were suspicious of paper money themselves. And so they really didn't want to give the government that power. But, and, and initially the Supreme Court was very skeptical of this, as basically everybody was skeptical. But during the course of the war, Abraham Lincoln had some appointments to the Supreme Court and he was able to put some people on the court whom he believed would go along with this idea. And, and Lincoln a greater president as he was, he was known to stretch the Constitution and stretch political convention in the interest of winning the war. As Lincoln himself said, you know, if we stand on the, the letter of every clause of the Constitution and we allow the Constitution itself to be destroyed 
And when none of it will be left, well, okay, I'll bend the Constitution here. And so this is, this is what uh, finally had to be done. But, but eventually, eventually people got used to it, except I will say eventually. No, for the next 30 years, there was this suspicion of paper money until the United States by the 1890s had gone, had retired all the greenbacks. So they weren't in circulation anymore. All the notes now, there was still paper money going around, but these paper notes said, this is redeemable in gold. And so the United States was operating on a de facto gold standard, which became an official gold standard in 1900. And a lot of people thought, oh, this is much better. Not many of them realized that this had been possible only because of the huge discoveries and production of gold in the half century after 1848. And the reason that the, the money supply was such a big deal for the United States was that the American economy was growing very rapidly in the period from 1850 to 1900. And in a rapidly growing economy, for prices to remain anywhere near stable, you also have to have a rapidly growing money supply. And if your money supply is simply gold and silver, then you are at the mercy of the latest discoveries. Now, fortunately, fortunately, gold had been discovered, and so gold could actually underwrite this expansion of the economy. But the biggest problem for maintaining economic growth is for investors to have some idea of what kind of returns they're going to get on investment. Are prices going up? Are prices going down? And in fact, it became a chronic problem for farmers in particular in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s when prices were falling. Now, the prices were falling as sort of we know some modern monetary theory because the money supply wasn't growing as fast as production. But for farmers, this continued uh, decline in prices, this deflation of the currency, um, it was devastating to them because they were all debtors. And if you're a debtor, then the debts get heavier when the price, when prices fall. So a, f a farmer who borrowed $100 at a time when wheat was worth a dollar a bushel, you know, expected to pay back the equivalent of 100 bushels of wheat. But if the price of wheat fell to 50%, 50 cents, then he had to work twice as hard. He had to make 200 bushels of wheat to pay off his debt. And so this is what gave rise to a movement called populism in the 1890s where farmers in particular say, we've got to somehow increase the money supply. They didn't have much in the way of monetary theory to underwrite this, but they knew if money was more plentiful, their lives would be better. In fact, there were a lot of farmers who had never seen uh, a silver coin. The United States, by the Constitution and early legislation, was allowed to mint gold and silver coins. But because gold became relatively more abundant to silver, um, to silver, then the silver coins went out of existence. And people had, had gotten very attached to the silver dollar, what they called the dollar of our daddies, but it had disappeared. And this because the money supply was shrinking. And so this was, this was the clarion call of the populace in the, 1890, in the 1890s. And it led to the nomination of William Jennings Bryan on a platform of free silver, liberate silver and liberate the farmers. It was, it's striking. Um, it was the hottest political issue for decades in American politics. This was the big fight between the haves and the have-nots of the day, uh, you know, wasn't it? Like those who were it, better off wanted right. to stick to gold. Those who were less well off wanted more money in supply. They wanted more money in circulation. It sliced sort of even more finely. It wasn't simply haves and haves not. It was debtors and creditors. 
and the debtors were hurting because the deflation was increasing the weight of their debts, but it also meant that farmers were hurting. And this was a time when farmers who had long been lauded by every political official, these were the salt of the earth, these are the sturdy yeomen on, which, on whom American democracy rested. The farmers realized that they were being basically pushed to the margins by people in the cities, by bankers, by merchants. And they looked around and they realized that their status had diminished tremendously. They were being criticized by folks who lived in the cities as rubes and hayseeds. So in addition to their financial woes, there was this sense that nobody appreciates us anymore. And this this commingling of a feeling of lost status and the feeling that you're being looked down upon by other people, that is a formula for populism both then and today. It sounds very similar to the the sort of sensibility uh, that's giving rise to populism in a lot of corners right now. Um, We got the income tax too, right? In order to help prop up and stabilize the greenback. Isn't that why the income tax was passed? So until, well, until the 20th century, the federal government relied for its revenues primarily on tariffs, taxes on imports, and on sales of public land. So there are lots of public land in the United States in the 19th century. There was no income tax until the Civil War, and the government needed a new source of revenue. And because the northern economy was booming during the Civil War, a lot of people had a lot of income, and it seemed to be an easy form of taxation. So Congress passed an income tax. It, was, it survived the war years, but it was later declared unconstitutional because one of the clauses of the Constitution says that direct taxes and, and income taxes, direct tax, have to be apportioned uh, according to population. And it wasn't. It was the income tax was levied according to wealth rather than population. And so it went out of, it passed out of existence and wasn't returned until the 1910s when the 16th Amendment to the Constitution explicitly said that we can have an income tax. Now, as this is the way it goes with taxation, the promoters of the income tax in the 19th century says, well, this will be a small tax. We'll just, you know, add it on to a few other things. But within 10 years, it was, and it remains, the dominant source of revenue for the federal government. Do you see, I mean, we've talked about some of them, but uh, as you kind of look at, I don't want to say implosion because who knows how uh, the crypto markets will end up shaking out. But as you look at the sort of disruption that's happened um, in that industry, I mean, I think investors have lost about $2 trillion uh, since crypto peaked. I mean, (laughs) that's like trillions with a T. I can't even, it's hard to even get your head around that. Do you see any parallels or historical uh, analogies or lessons that can be learned? You know, look, past is often prologue. Sure. What can some of these previous fights that we've had over currency and and the faith that we will or won't uh, put in it, uh, put into it? What can they teach us about the sort of crypto roller coaster that we're on right now? Well, I think the the appropriate way to look at the crypto bubble and bust is that it's essentially another one of the speculative bubbles that come along. And they can come along in real estate in the beginning of this century. They can be in tech stocks, as a case in the 1990s. It can be in shares on Wall Street generally in the 1920s. So crypto, it, it has a place, and the blockchain technology has a place. And it'll probably find its place. But 
the huge run-up in share prices of crypto stocks was really a matter of speculation. So it was going up and people thought they would continue to go up because there's no, it's not as though crypto pays dividends and it's not as though crypto you know, has any particularly business model that says, okay, our profits running out so far are going to be this. It's just a matter of as the price of crypto went up, lots of people got on board and they said, okay, it's going up. It's going to continue to go up. So I'm going to go in. It's, I mean, in essence, it's the greater fool theory. I'm going to buy it today at hundred because somebody's going to buy it from me at 150 next month. But it makes these, these bubbles really fragile because once something comes along to make you think, uh-oh, I'm the last fool in line here, there's no other fool, then you have to unload it as quickly as you can. Now, I think that the motivation behind it, the idea that there ought to be a way to transfer funds more conveniently and less expensively, if I have relatives who live in another country, for example, I think... I think that's going to last. I think that the smart contracts that you can get out of the blockchain technology, that I think those will find their place. But as far as currency, I don't know. Well, actually, I guess I, I asked my students this. Have any of you bought any crypto? And half, half my class raised their hand. But then I say, have you ever purchased anything with crypto? No, nah, no, they haven't. <laughs> so, so it really hasn't found its use as an alternative currency. It is just this vehicle for speculation until now. And until the use value as real money comes along, then we're going to see more and more of this. Don't you also need to have some kind of regulatory safeguard? or check uh, in oh. order for people to have faith in a currency. I mean, look, we've got a lot of dollars floating around. Some say inflation may be calming down. Um, I'm not an economist or a predictor of the future, but we only believe in paper money because the government makes rules about how it's printed. It makes rules for banks in terms of how they distribute and circulate it. Uh, there are so many rules, and I think that's why people trust it. Will people ever really trust a currency if they feel like, you know, the people who are developing it can sort of make the rules up as they go along. That is a way, that's a huge oversimplification of uh, the crypto model because that's not how it works. The little bit I know of how it works. Right, right. Um, but it's not regulated in the way that currency is regulated. And won't that make, won't that make people less confident in it? Oh, certainly it'll make people less confident in it. Now, the advocates of crypto would say, well, the government re regulation spoils the whole point of it because the point of crypto is this thing to be beyond the realm of government. And of course, um, early adopters were people who were using it for illegal purposes and they didn't want the government to be able to trace what they were doing. But you can see models of this. For example, we talked in the earlier portion here about all the paper money that was floating around issued by banks in the first half of the 19th century. But that didn't suit the purposes of this growing economy until the 1860s. And then the Legal Tender Act basically drove all of that private money out of business. So people operating through the American democratic system said, this free-for-all, this wild west of everybody having their own currency, it's not working. We need a regulator. And the, somebody has to regulate in order to get people like me to say, I'll, I'll try that. I'm not going to buy any crypto as long as I don't have some confidence in this. The same thing can be said regarding the stock market. So in the 1920s, there was no SEC, and there was very little government oversight of the stock market. And the stock market was almost like another kind of Wild West. And so things 
went up and up and up, and then came the great stock market crash of 1929. It came crashing down. And Wall Street, for the first time, recognized that in its own self-interest, it needed some government oversight because otherwise nobody would ever have confidence to invest in the stock market again. So what usually happens is there's some innovation. Somebody has this new idea. We're going to try this. And it's not regulated because nobody thought to regulate it yet. And then there are aficionados who pour in and they make money at it. And sometimes they make money sort of straight up. Sometimes they make it in shady ways. And then there's a crash. And then a lot of people who are kind of innocent in this, well-meaning, but perhaps uninformed, they lose money. And then they say to their member of Congress, come on, you got to regulate this thing. And so then Congress eventually comes along and regulates it. So I suspect that something like this is going to happen. Or alternatively, what could happen is the U.S. government could issue its own crypto. And that would be a in essence, uh, a regulatory scheme. And the, the Federal Reserve has been talking about this, and the government of China is talking about this. So it won't be what the, the hardcore Bitcoinists wanted, because they wanted this thing that was beyond the reach of government. But if it's beyond the reach of government, then nobody's going to want to use it. And so there has to be this, you know, in life, you got to make a compromise between what seems the ideal over here and the practical side over here. So I think the same thing's going to happen with crypto. It's about finding the sweet spot, right? Because if it's a total it wild west, then nobody's going to trust it. If it is, you know, the government's got its hands over all parts of, you know, is, is, is too much in the weeds and micromanaging, then nobody's going to want to touch it. I mean, it seems as it says it's the same as with all things, really, in policy. And the difficulty, of course, is that what's my sweet spot is not your sweet spot. You know, I think it's here and you think it's there. And we'll argue about this because certainly in the case, case of crypto, as you pointed out, we're talking about trillions of dollars at stake here. There's big money. Professor H.W. Brands, this was so fun and fascinating. It was. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Prolific, prolific author, uh, The Money Men, American Colossus. Uh, you really have a wonderful way of making history interesting and alive and pertinent and current. So thank you for being here and sharing your thoughts on the show. My pleasure, Tanya. 